Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to work our way around the body head to toe, exploring different body parts and organs and their history in a cultural, medical, social sense. We're going to hear from a historian or curator about their work studying these body parts and their history. And we'll finish up each episode by exploring some of the recipes that were developed in history to treat that part of the body. So welcome to Head to Toe as we make our way around the body. My name is Daisy Cunningham and I am the college's heritage manager. And my name's Olivia Howarth and I'm a volunteer with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Heritage. And today we've made it as far as the heart. Now, I should start by saying I got very lost in the world of heart-related symbolism and abstract heart. So before I get into the random stuff I've been thinking about, do you have any actual heart facts? I have one. It's to do with the size of your heart. There's a common comparison between your heart being the same size as your fist. I read an article that was about whether that is a good enough comparison to judge cardiomegaly. I'm sorry, the what now? (laughs) (laughs) Cardiomegaly being the enlargement of your heart. So if your heart is bigger than your fist, is that a good enough judgment to say that you have an enlarged heart? And it was an article from Cardiovascular Pathology where they'd done a study surveying bodies post-mortem, comparing the size of their hearts and fists for people who had cardiomegaly and people that didn't. And it was concluded that if your heart was larger than your fist, didn't mean you had an enlarged heart. So it's a rough approximation rather than a useful medical measurement. I guess as a sort of rough idea, it helps. There's so many things that we all think that we know that when you look at it a little bit harder, it turns out we don't quite know. And so we can add that to the list, I think. So my tangent, and I realise that I am stretching the meaning of the word heart quite a bit, is I got into love. And a lot of people have been very interested in the heart symbol. I'm doing a gesture with my hands. This is a podcast. That's unhelpful. (laughs) But the heart-shaped kind of love heart symbol that you see and, and where that came from. And there's various different arguments about that. Similar symbols can be found very far back, as far back as ancient Greece and even Egypt. They don't seem to mean love. They seem to be representing some type of leaf. You know, it's a medical treatment. Take the fig leaf, take the ivy leaf, that sort of thing. So you can't assume whenever you see that shape that that's what it means. And certainly in sort of ancient Greece and into ancient Rome, the the connection of love and the heart is a bit tenuous. More often, the sort of seat of love is considered to reside in the liver. And a lot of symbols of heart in that time are very strange looking things. So when they're drawing a heart, it looks more like a pine cone than it does a love heart. Descriptions and understanding of how the heart were a bit different, let's say. And they certainly hadn't seen a heart when it was functioning. It was a long dead heart, which looked rather different. But some of the theories about where the love heart symbol come from include that it derives from from this sort of leaf symbol is one option. One option, which I'm pretty sure is almost certainly false, but don't quote me on that, is that it's shaped after either the breasts or the buttocks. That it is a symbol of love because that's what love is. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence to back up that idea. 
I'm sure I've seen, I'm pretty sure it's the Fantasia cartoon. There's a bit where there's loads of cherubs flying around and one of the cherubs' bums turns into a little heart shape. And that is evidence. <laughs> That's evidence. <laughs> it's probably as good as we've got. Probably the most likely thing is that given that the early descriptions of the heart by Aristotle and the like were quite different, that people were drawing a simplified version of this three-chambered object that had a dent in the top and it became more and more sort of simplified and turned into sort of this icon and became the heart. It's probably the most likely thing rather than the buttocks thing. But it's not impossible. So the first use of the heart in the context of love, the little love heart symbol in the context of love, is apparently about 1250. There's a French romantic poem in which a man is down on one knee and hands a heart to his lover. So it's heart meaning chest heart, but also heart meaning love. And he's gifting his love to her. It's terrible that immediately in my head I'm thinking, of course it was the French. One of the most romantic cultures. It was the French and it was in a poem. It's perfect. It's beautiful. <laughs> but then the heart starts to be used more and more. It's used in a lot of religious symbolism. There's a lot of Jesus with a love heart shaped heart in his chest, showing the sacred heart and the, the love that he is bestowing. The heart and the chest being connected with the concept of love becomes a real cultural point, especially in the Crusades, where there's a lot of discussions about, you know, if you can't afford to send your dead husband or father or son's body back from the Crusades, just send his heart. Interesting fact about disembodied hearts. There were researchers, they were excavating a burial site at a convent in France, and they found the body of 17th century French noblewoman who had been buried with the embalmed heart of her husband. And although it wasn't the first case of organs being buried separately from bodies, it's the first archaeological evidence of that romantic link being there. So she was called Louise de Quengo, Lady of Brefayac terrible pronunciation and she was buried in a lead coffin which was excavated from the Jacobin convent in Rennes and inside her casket was a small lead container which was heart-shaped in that heart-shaped symbol and it contained the heart of her husband Toussaint de Perrien, knight of Brefayac. Again, sorry, pronunciation. <laughs> and according to the inscription, he had died in 1649, seven years earlier than Louise, and was buried 125 miles away in a Carbonite convent that he had founded. And researchers have said that his heart would have been removed before his burial, sealed in its airtight lead container to prevent decomposition and brought to the convent where Louise was living as a widow and most likely displayed in the chapel where she worshipped every day until she died. And interestingly, they did a CT examination of Louise's body and her heart had also been removed. The logical conclusion is that her heart was removed and buried with her husband, but they haven't been able to prove that because they haven't found his burial site. To me, that's the most interesting twist is she was buried with the heart of her lover, but then her heart wasn't there. Surely that would be the two hearts coming together, not her heart then going somewhere else. It's not what I expected at the end of the story. Well, there's sort of, I guess, a symbolism in like you hold each other's hearts. But assuming that that's what happened. Yeah. Assuming that that's what happened, yeah. And apparently they found quite a lot of these lead hearts in this burial site at the convent. And it was unusual because things like those were often melted down to make bullets. So interesting it survived. 
1480, so not that long after the kind of development of the first printing press, they started commercially manufacturing playing cards again in France. There were playing cards before them, but they were handmade. And in the handmade playing cards, there was no heart suit. It was a symbol of the Holy Grail. But when they started printing them, they substituted with a heart. And that's when you get your heart deck. Another thing that came up a lot when I was reading about the heart in this slightly more um, abstract way, I suppose, is fainting. So fainting is often called a softening or a breaking of the heart. And obviously now it's still considered one of the symptoms of heart complaints. I went down a dive of looking into the history. And I think the first thing that really struck me was in the earlier descriptions, we're thinking sort of medieval and even into the kind of early modern, is that it's talked about a lot more in the context of men than it is of women. Fainting is something which those sort of heroic texts, there's an odyssey, there's a group of men who are discovering and voyaging and that sort of thing, is that it's part of the male bonding, the male sort of friendship is in moments of drama, in moments of high emotion, the man will faint, his male friends will help him and support him. And it's only later that it then switches in the sort of Georgian period and becomes much more associated with women in the way that we probably still think of it as being today. I had always connected fainting with that, oh, your corset's laced too tight, you're overcome uh, because you can't breathe. But is there another romantic link there in fainting being a sign that you're overcome with love or is it more it, heroic when it comes to men? It's definitely more heroic. It's much more about male bonding. It's not about love towards women. Women are not part of this conversation. <laughs> you know, it's about, about kind of men as groups of men. But it's it's very difficult, obviously, because a lot of people have written about fainting. It's very difficult to know when we get into the Georgian or the Victorian period why these things are happening. Is it, as you say, is it corsets? Is it that they are so malnourished that they're breathing in the arsenic wallpaper and and taking the mercury medicine, is that what's happening? Or is there something to do with women's roles in society? You're not allowed to speak, you're not allowed to do certain things. Again, as always, we are very much talking about middle and upper class women, that there are so many restrictions. How do you show a man that you care about him in a world where any active demonstration of that means that you are inappropriate? You know, how do you join in or become part of something when the ways in which you're allowed to do that are so restricted. So that's one of the arguments is that's all that they're allowed to do. Faint in a corner. Yeah. If you want a man to know that you like him, that is how you do it because you can't verbally tell him because that would be crossing all sorts of lines. So you just faint in his presence and then he knows. It's certainly one of the arguments, whether that is true or not, I don't know. But the more women are constricted in what they are allowed to do, the more they start becoming hysterical or fainting or or all these sorts of things. So when we're talking about disease and sickness, obviously, when we're looking at history, what we think of as a disease is often quite different to what we think of it as being now. And quite a common complaint in the Middle Ages and early modern period was the disease of lovesickness. So this is understood not by everybody, but by plenty of physicians and specialists as being a definite actual disease. It comes back, of course, to humoral theory, as everything does. It's an excess of black bile, an excess of melancholy causes sickness. And if you're already melancholy, you are more likely to become lovesick. So it's a bit of a balance between the two. We have a fantastic book in our collections called Erotomania, a treatise discoursing the essences, causes, symptoms and cure of love or erotic melancholy. Um, So that's another name for love, erotic melancholy. 
That makes it sound far more exciting. It definitely does. <laughs> um, it wasn't necessarily romantic in the sense that we think of it as being. It could be, but it was also quite common to have religious love sickness. So nuns were thought to be in love with Christ. So they would have all the symptoms of this sort of obsessive love that we're talking about. So it wasn't always about a romantic partner in that sense. I read through the book and some of the treatments are the usual stuff. There's a lot of bloodletting, as there always is. There's some warm baths, which I'm fine with. There's a lot of eating lettuce. I think it cools your passions. I can imagine eating on a vast amount of lettuce might just relax <laughs> you a bit. But there's a lot of go for a walk, sit in the garden, rest, which can make at least some sort of sense. He talks a lot about these various treatments. My favourite one, which I wrote down, is one of the causes of love is quote, the use of hot, provocative, flatulent and melancholy meat. Right. So eating meat causes love. Is it a provocative meat though? Yes. <laughs> it could be a flatulent meat. But yeah, so he has a list of things to avoid and that is one of the things to avoid, provocative meat. He suggested enemas as a treatment. He said not to wear velvet because velvet aroused the passions. So there you go. And it is treated as if it's an infectious disease, so it can be caught instantly and you will instantly have fever, headache, insomnia, loss of appetite. Maybe the fever is a bit strong, but some of the other ones I would imagine still being viewed as outcomes of love sickness. Yeah, there's an Estonian pharmacy in the capital of Tallinn called Reoptik. I think, which translates to town hall pharmacy. And it's been in continuous operation for over 600 years. And it still offers a prescription for broken hearts, which is a special, special marzipan sold to relieve the pain of love. I very much approve. Having read so many of these recipes now, I was expecting goat dung. So honestly, marzipan, <laughs> it's at least fine. It's certainly, given some of the other things that were commonly prescribed, they've gone for the safe option of marzipan. For our case study today, we're going to explore one of the most long-lasting heart treatments, digitalis or foxglove. Foxglove has been used to treat heart complaints for hundreds of years. In 1785, the Scottish physician Dr William Withering isolated digitalis as Foxglove's active ingredient. Digitalis slows and regularises the heartbeat, as well as increasing urination. Withering experimented with the medicinal use of digitalis for 10 years before he published his book titled An Account of the Foxglove. This slim volume details the results of his use of digitalis in 163 cases, but his original discovery was its use in dropsy, or swelling particularly of the ankles, a common symptom of heart failure. He learned of a complex medicine with many ingredients which was used by a local healer in Shropshire to treat dropsy. The recipe had been handed down to her through generations of women healers. Through experimentation, he was able to discover that of the more than a dozen herbs and plants in the recipe, that digitalis was the active ingredient. Withering recommended that leaves be gathered at the time that blossoms appeared, and that these were, quote, dried, either in the sunshine or on a tin pan or pewter dish before a fire. If well dried, these rub down to a beautiful green powder. But Withering also warned that the overuse of digitalis was dangerous, saying that, quote, The foxglove, when given in large and quickly repeated doses, occasions sickness, vomiting, purging, giddiness, confused vision, objects appearing green or yellow, increased secretion of urine, 
slow pulse, even as slow as 35 in a minute, cold sweats, convulsions, unconsciousness, and death. But Withering's discovery wasn't the start of the medicinal use of foxglove. Long before then, records survived showing the use of digitalis, particularly to reduce swelling of the internal organs and to cause vomiting and increased urination. Although, as with many early treatments, digitalis was used on a huge range of diseases, from epilepsy to scrofula and jaundice to gout, according to William Salmon, the author of the 1710 British herbal, Foxglove, Quote, produces weakness, induces vomiting and purges. It cleans the body from top to bottom and thereby rids it of tenacious humours. Much of the use of digitalis was restricted to its ability to slow the pulse, and so any disease where the pulse was accelerated was seen as being well suited to this treatment, including typhoid, tuberculosis and pneumonia. It did such a good job of slowing down the pulse that it was known as the opium of the heart. If opium sedated the mind, then digitalis sedated the heart. Withering had recommended ingesting digitalis in pill form so as to better regulate the dose, as there were dangerous side effects to overdosing. But over time it began to be given in ever larger and more loosely measured doses in the form of tonics and often mixed with other strong drugs. The unpredictable side effects reduced its use. There is a theory that Vincent van Gogh had been treated with digitalis. Van Gogh certainly suffered from epilepsy, and epilepsy was one of the diseases that digitalis has historically been used to treat. There is no evidence for this particular case, however, and a great deal of the theorising comes not from historical records, but from van Gogh's art, particularly his famous painting, The Starry Night. One of the side effects of high digitalis use was visual aberrations, and particularly shifting of the visual colour scale towards yellow. The theory goes that the style of painting, and particularly the colours used by Van Gogh, were the result of his doctor's prescription. In this short clip, Dr. Kristen Hussey explains the medical world of the English physician William Harvey when he made his remarkable discovery of the function of the heart and the circulation of the blood. Born in 1578, Harvey grew up in Folkestone near Kent, and at 15, he went to grammar school in Canterbury. In 1593, he went to Gonville and Keyes College in Cambridge. But what was the understanding of the body of health and disease which Harvey would have had growing up and which would have been taught to him at Cambridge? Medicine in this period was, of course, dominated by the teachings of the Roman physician Claudius Galen, who died in 210 AD. And while undoubtedly medical research and thinking continued in the intervening years, particularly in the Islamic world, um, it's fair to say that medicine in Western Europe actually changed very little in the 1500-year period between Galen's death and Harvey arriving uh, at Cambridge. The body was understood to be composed of the four humors, blood, black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm. And your body was understood to, to really be a little universe within itself, a, a microcosm which was fundamentally isolated from the world around it. Um, so at a time before an understanding of germs, there wasn't the same conception of, of as I could say, porousness. The idea that you could be affected by sort of sneezes or touches or the bodily excretions of those around you. Um, if you became ill, it was because there was an imbalance of one of those vital humors, and then remedies would be prescribed 
to restore balance. Um, so we see here on the screen examples of some, some really classic uh, sort of 16th century uh, medical interventions. One is the antimony cup, which is absolutely one of my favorite items in our collection. Um, antimony, of course, is a very poisonous heavy metal. Um, and this would have been prescribed. A physician would have poured wine into the glass, would have been allowed to stand overnight so the wine soaks up uh, the essence of the antimony. It would have then been administered, and the patient would have violently purged themselves um, as their body reacted to that poison. Uh, so very much a kind of kill or cure philosophy um, from the physicians at the time. Um, you also then, of course, have bleeding. Um, but of course, there were other remedies and um, that would have been allowed uh, to keep you fit and healthy. So things like diet, exercise, and the use of herbal medicines. Um, but also not forgetting in this period is not the same set separation between the religious and the scientific. And um, so illness could very well be caused by sin, uh, whether that's on your part or in the community, which is very much a framework um, that was revived in the plague outbreak not long after Harvey's death in 1665. Um, and I would point out as well, this is very much what would have been prescribed standard practice by doctors at the Royal College of Physicians um, in Harvey's lifetime. Um, indeed, Galen was very much uh, the law of the land when it came to the college. So while with, within that Galenic tradition, um, it's important to think then where does the blood sit specifically? Because this is really where Harvey is going to make his contribution. Um, and for me, uh, there was really no better illustration of, of the heart and the blood and where that lies in the landscape than this gorgeous image of a, it's a German wooden anatomical figure that's actually in the exhibition. We have a, a loan from the Science Museum, um, which shows sort of a popular anatomy in the 17th, uh, 16th, 17th century. And you can look at it and see the sort of amazing vital organs. If you took the, um, the sort of the guts out of place, you would see a, a uterus with a baby inside, as, as they like to do. Um, but what you won't see anywhere is the heart. And that's simply because it just wasn't that important. Um, in the center of the body, however, you will find the liver. Um, so this is where we start really with the understanding of medicine. Blood, um, or nutritional blood as they called it, was cooked or concocted in your liver. You would imbibe food. It was then transported to the liver and turned into this nutritional blood, and your organs would then draw them towards themselves as they needed it, consume it, use it, and that's the end of that. So that's one blood system. There's another blood system, however, which would be spiritus blood. So in dissections, they knew you had a darker blood and a, and a lighter blood, this arterial and venous blood, and so this is how they're explaining it. So that lighter blood is, is spiritus blood, and what happens is you inhale spirit, you know, from, from the air around us, I'm not quite sure what it is, you know, but they do know if you stop breathing, you will die. So there must be something inherently life-giving in the air around us. And this is then inhaled by the lungs. The heart is really seen as an organ of respiration. It's almost attached to the lungs. And its job is to bring spiritus blood into the system. Now how it circulates starts to get a bit funny. There's some kind of pores maybe in the heart that lets it move around. Um, the heart, there's confusion about how it works. Is it, is it like a bellows? Is it a pump? They don't really know. Um, so there's a lot of sort of misunderstanding that comes from the fact that Galen was really, of course, dissecting animals and not people. Um, so when you look back at his text, a lot of confusion around the heart, the blood, and their various purposes. Welcome to Recipes of Yore. We're going to explore some unusual medical recipes from the past. The way in which the word recipes was used in the past is a bit different from how it's used today. So it could mean recipes for cooking, for medicine, or even recipes for cleaning products or cosmetics. Very few of them were treatments we would recognise in the 21st century, and certainly none of these should be tried at home. 
There were a lot of different things that could go wrong with your heart, and even if diagnosis was tricky, there were many pains, twinges and sensations that people were desperate to explain. So it is perhaps unsurprising that the 1700s recipe book by John Moncrief, the poor man's physician, devoted a whole section just to the heart. According to this text, the treatment for gnawing about the heart was, quote, Take sage leaves, a pretty quantity, and temper them with ale, then strain them and drink them. The treatment for swooning or fainting of the heart was, quote, Boil a hen in a vessel well stopped and covered in all places, to the consumption of two parts of water, casting thereunto comfortable things, as are amber, musk, and the like. After this, being cut in pieces, and as yet reeking and smoking, apply it to the patient's nose, and give the patient the broth to drink. Another recipe for swooning was given as, quote, Lying upon the back, throwing cold water on the face, provoking to sneezing, putting of strong wine into the mouth, holding of hot bread to the nose, loud calling and shrieking, stopping of the nostrils, wringing of the fingers, pulling of the hair, rubbing, binding, cupping. Although swooning is classed as a disease of the heart, many different causes, and therefore many different kinds of treatments, are given. Just to give examples of a couple, quote, If it come from some evil quality, give cordials and antidotes. If from poison, give things to expel it. If it comes from immoderate evacuation, let the patient be refreshed with scents, meat, drink, sleep, and rest. The same text gives this recipe to treat heart pains. Quote, Gold braid and boiled with coral and pearl. Apply to the pulses of the arm a plaster made of twice-baked bread, commonly called biscuit, first toasted at the fire, then steeped in strong vinegar and baked. Apply to the heart a plaster of bread, steeped in the best wine, and added to the powder of roses, nutmeg and cloves. For beating and palpitation of the heart, all these above mentioned are good, but chiefly the bone of the heart of a stag, made in powder, taken with rose water and wine, the heart of an ox steeped in white wine and then distilled, a smock or shirt, perfumed with strong-smelling things, put on and worn, a pock filled with strong-smelling powder, called violet powder, applied to the heart. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at rcpeheritage. And we have a Just Giving page, rcpeheritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.